Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. When Cassandra Clark publishes a new book in her Abbess of Merce series, Medievalists Around England Rejoice. The 10-book series, Sparked by a Dream, focuses on the remarkable Cistercian Prioress Hildegard and the turbulent reign of the boy king, King Richard II. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today Cassandra talks about how the victors always write history and being in New York on September 11. But before we get to Cassandra, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Cassandra's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Cassandra. Hello there, Cassandra, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, thanks for inviting me. It's, it's scary, but lovely to be here. Look, it's, I'm sure that when one of your books is published, Medievalists Around England Rejoice, you can probably hear the cheers from your kitchen window because people who are passionate about the period rave about them. They say medievalists rejoice. So I just wonder, was there a once upon a time moment when you felt I must write fiction or my life will not have been fulfilled and if there was such a moment what was the catalyst for it? (laughs) Well that's a really funny question because someone asked me that a few days ago and I thought gosh the first time I knew I wanted to be a writer was when I was five. Uh, I just felt it was magic I'd learned to read and every book was like walking through into a new world and I just I just loved it so much so I, I, I didn't get around to thinking about a novel until I was nine and strangely I wrote one called The Mystery of the Haunted Lighthouse <laughs> because I'd been reading a lot of Enid Blyton at the time. No, there was any other kind of thing to write about. So that's when it started but my first, it took a long time to um, start writing properly because I was also interested in theatre. I'm mad about theatre, I, I really love it. That's the same magic when the curtain rises, it's just like opening a book. It's another world. So I wanted to write for theatre, and what, that's what I did to begin with. I wrote a dozen plays, performed in different means on the stage, television, radio, and so forth. And then I needed to make some real money, and I have to say, for the next 15 years, I simply wrote for money. I wrote contemporary romance, which I'd never heard of until I met someone who wrote for them, and she said, yes, it's quite well paid, but it's very hard then. They get 30,000 submissions a year. You know, you haven't much chance. But I was immensely lucky. My first one um, was accepted. And from then on, I wrote about one or two a year, which was brilliant because I was divorced. I had two small children, no other means of support. So it was it was a lifesaver to me. You sound as if you're very modest because you were, it was, took more than luck, I'm sure, to, to break into that that um, field was that was that a, a house like Mills and Boone or Harlequin but yeah and then I took a year out when both my girls were, one's in Australia and she was at drama school in London 
and the other one was at Cambridge. And I thought, huh, my daughters are students. I think I'll be a student again. So <laughs> I did Mal- Malcolm Bradbury's um, creative writing degree, an MA at Norwich, and refound my love of theatre and thought, right, I'm going to change direction. Now I'm going to I'm going to be a playwright. Um, but then I've got a very quick 10 years of disaster, which I won't go into, but I thought I was going to lose my sight. My father had a stroke. My mother was in a wheelchair. She died. He couldn't talk. Um, and he was a great talker in, in, in previous life. And then I went to um, Edward Albee's barn in New York to finish a play. And the very next day, just after I arrived, was September the 11th. Oh, my gosh, what timing. Yeah, I know. And my play started off with five dead people. It wasn't quite a comedy. (laughs) It was about dark matter and stuff like that. I like writing about factual scientific things. So um, when I could get a plane back home, I went home and then he died very shortly after that. I think the shock of it affected him very, very deeply. And I didn't know what to do. I thought, oh, what do I write? I can't get it. I just started to found a theatre company with a composer friend when he had his stroke and that had just fallen by the wayside. And I didn't know what I wanted to write. There were so many ideas being repressed for the previous 10 years. I didn't know how to do it. And then I had a dream. Um, People who like the idea of dreams and mystical things are intrigued by this, uh, which I am, I think. And I hadn't smiled for about a year. And I woke myself up one night laughing my head off. I thought, oh, it was a dream. These three people having a good old Yorkshire banter. And it was so funny. I wrote it down on, I always keep paper and pencil by my bed, put it under the pillow. Next morning, woke up, forgot all about it, rolled over. Wow, and there was this little scene between these three strange people. And it turned out that they were wearing medieval clothes and one was a nun. I thought, what? I know nothing about nuns. And I thought, oh, short story. Write it down anyway. It's still funny next morning. So I wrote it down. And then I thought, I don't know what they're doing. They're having a drink, but what are they drinking from? So I started to do a bit of research. And this is, it's so magical the way all this fell into place because in my research, I was homing in, homing in on Richard II for some reason, that period, the late 14th century. And by chance, I heard of a chronicle, roughly at that time, at the British Library, so I went along. Uh, They knew they had it, but they couldn't find it. So I went to a, a wonderful little library called Dr. Williams's Library. It was one of those Victorian endowed libraries that they were so good at. And Within 10 minutes, they'd come back from their archive with these three really dusty volumes that clearly hadn't been open for about 100 years. And although they were in Latin, there were little bits of English in the margins, and I struggled through. And it was a story of Melsa, written by, that's the Abbey of Meuse, um, and it was written by the abbot in 1395. So it was obvious I had to write about that particular period. And the Peasants' Revolt really intrigued me because I thought, what happened to all those amazing people who held London for four days in defiance of the army and the king and the church, held it for the people, 
And then what? Lots of them were hanged. They dispersed. They went to live wild in the woods. There's no record. And it really interested me. So I started to research that whole thing. And I thought, I don't want to start with a peasant's revolt because I'm not an historian. And there are so many sides to it. And it's such a massive topic. It's too much for one novel. So I thought I'll start a little bit later when people are slightly recovering, gathering their forces again, perhaps. And the king, who made that really courageous dash into Smithfield to avert a massacre of the peasants when he was 14, really intrigued me as a character because he's got such a bad press from the Lancastrians. So that's Richard II that we're talking about. But just let's backtrack a moment. Um, Melsa, is that spelled M-E-L-S-A? That's right. And, and that's the Latin name for Muse. And you knew about Muse already, didn't you? Because you... I knew about Muse. I didn't know it was called Melsa. Mm. But how did you know about Muse? Um, well, it's in the East Riding and it's four miles from Beverly. And five miles from Beverly is the village I was brought up in called Cottingham. It's now been absorbed by the University of Hull. Um, but when I was a child, it was surrounded by woodland. And it's, it was just very beautiful. It's a very old place. At one end was the Gothic church, endowed by the Black Prince. That's Richard II's father. And at the other end of the village was a moated castle owned by the Wake family. And the Wakes are famous for one thing, because Lord Wake had a very beautiful wife, apparently, in Tudor times. Henry VIII was on the throne, and he'd heard about this beautiful woman. So being Henry, he thought, oh, I'm going to have a look. So he sent ahead saying, I'm going to arrive and stay with you for a few days. And Lord Wake was so terrified, he thought, that's it, he's going to take my wife. So apparently he set fire to his entire house and they all escaped and Henry couldn't stay there and his wife was saved from his clutches. <laughs> That's the story. <laughs> That's the story I grew up with. Then. Oh, gorgeous. Do you think that your, your dream, that somehow it had been seeded in your mind all those years before as a child somehow? Yes, isn't that strange how these things can come out? Because I certainly hadn't thought about it. I mean, there were, I knew there were two things I didn't want to write. One was a crime novel, not interested in people being killed and murdered and so forth. And the other was an hist historical novel, not interested in either of those things, as I thought. I'd always been writing about contemporary issues and science and cutting-edge stuff, you know, politics and so on, um, street theatre, all that sort of thing. So this is a, a total segue from what I imagined was my main part. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, it may be a mistake. Who knows? <laughs> well, you've now got 10 of these books, so it's a, a pretty, it's something that's developed a life of its own. Now, your your heroine, Hildegard, if we talk a little bit about this, she's the, the one of the, the really central character of the whole series is Hildegard, who becomes a, an abbess of Mo. Now, she's a young widow of high social status who decides to become a nun rather than remarry. That seems to me to be fairly cutting edge. So she joins that Cistercian Abbey in Yorkshire that we've mentioned, Mo. Can you explain for modern readers why a young woman of 
high birth would make such a choice. Prefer to be a nun than to have a second husband. She's Her husband gets killed off in Europe fighting and she has two children and she doesn't want any more husbands or children, apparently. Yes, I think, well, childbirth was really dangerous in those days. There was massive, um, well, infant mortality as well as mothers dying. I mean, there's a, a long list of royal women who died in childbirth. So you could understand her not wanting any more children. She'd done a bit, hadn't she? Yes. Um, also, the choice would be, you know, some other military fellow <laughs> sweating in his male shirt and, <laughs> and, you know, all that stuff. And She's quite, um, she likes beautiful things and she she's very keen on having some sort of power and agency of her own. And the Cistercian order seems absolutely tailor-made for anybody like that. Um, it's been called the blue chip company of the age. I don't remember who said that, but it implies that they were at the for- forefront of economic life in England. England was based on the wool trade in, in those days. And the Cistercians owned vast acres of land <coughs> um, for, for sheep, sheep farming. And they, they had a, a huge hand in what went on. And women were more or less equal in that sort of trade. The prioress at Swine, the, it, it's a little little priory quite close to the Abbey of Muse. You can walk across. It's about two miles through marshland between the two. So it was a kind of subsidiary of Muse. And the nuns there owned massive amounts of land, most of it given to them by benefactors and they had a very lively litigious relationship with the monks and this is all in the chronicle really in that chronicle in the williams library yes yes and it's all there and the the abbot who wrote it makes no comment at all but there's one particular case where the prioress who i've I've kind of modeled my prioress on her she sounds terrific She staged the very first sit-in that I know of. Um, The monks wouldn't pay rent on some land, so she took them to court, to the Archbishop's Court in York. The Archbishop found against her, so she thought, right, I'll take it to the King's Bench in London. So she went down to London to court and won, but they contested it. So she thought, right, go to the Pope. So she went, amazingly, at this time, when you think they travelled by horse and carriage, she went down to Rome and the Pope found against her. So she thought, well, I'm not having that, all these boys ganging up against me. So she went back to Swine, got a dozen nuns or so, and they actually sat in this disputed property and refused to come out. So what the monks did was dismantle it brick by brick, stone by stone, until they they won in a sort of way, except that when they went back to find their horses to go back to Muse, the villagers at a place called Hedden nearby were so incensed and so much in support of the nuns, they stole all their horses and impounded them and wouldn't let them have them back. So the monks had to walk all the way back to Muse. So in some ways, the prioress of swine won that one. Um, She also did a a good deal, but she was supposed to pay a fine to all these 
judges who were all men, of course. And she got such good terms. She was paying tiny amount every year, which went on for about three decades. So I think she actually beat them. <laughs> but such an amazing character. You wouldn't think that sort of thing was happening then. But it was. And so that I know that in your books, um, Hildegard goes off to continental Europe. I think she does go to Rome. So that's all completely historically a- able to happen. I mean, it, d- it did happen. Yes, there's a road, really, London, Canterbury, then across the Channel, and it's called the Via Francigena, and it goes down to Rome. She only got as far as Florence, but it's there, and Berlusconi is trying to open it up, was trying to open it up, and sign oh, How interesting, yeah. And so, I always do very quite thorough research as far as I can. I met some people called Pilgrims to Rome in London, and they meet once a year. But they are totally intrepid, and I'm very much in awe of them, because I would never do what they do. But they just set off walking with hardly any equipment. And we were having a, a, a drink once, and the phone call came through, and it was from a lady in her 60s. She was walking alone, and she was just approaching Jerusalem. She'd done the pilgrim route. <laughs> it's so astonishing. She said, oh, I'm yes. almost there. And I said, well, where is she? And she said, oh, just outside Jerusalem. <laughs> but they used to, there's a very interesting um, document written by a, a monk in the 1350s about the route to Rome from Canterbury and how they did it. Because it was signposted and there was a retreat at the top run by monks, the St. Bernard ones. And... They, they had a, a signposted route and everyone who stayed there left with some wine and some bread and some cheese to keep them going to the next staging post. But That's to get gorgeous. down the side of them, they used to slide down on the hides of animals. And this fellow described it all in immense detail. It's so interesting. Fantastic. Look, at the centre of these books is Richard II, this controversial king. And I think that in your, as you've researched them, you've become really quite um, involved and an expert on Richard II, haven't you? For those who don't know very much about him, could you just perhaps give us a thumbnail sketch of this king? He, he was a boy king and he reigned for 22 years, didn't he? That's right. And he was the son of the Black Prince one of the most famous warlords in Europe at the time. And his mother was known as Joan, the Fair Maid of Kent, because she was very, very beautiful. So these very glamorous, these very glamorous parents um, had three children. They had an elder son called Arthur who died when he was five. And the second son was, was Richard, who wasn't really brought up to be a king. Um, and he then became king, not expecting to rule until his father reached a fairly advanced age. But tragically, his father contracted um, a disease, something to do with, I think it's to do with wearing armour, affects the skin. One or two Plantagenet warlords had the same sort of thing. And he had to be taken into battle in a, on a litter towards the end. But he died in his very early 40s. So that made... Uh, and just before he died, um, Edward III, the king died too. So Richard was left at 10 as king of England. Mm. Um, and the thing is, Edward III had many sons. He had, I think, five sons. And the black prince, Edward, was the eldest. And then there's one called Lionel, who married an Italian daughter 
of the Duke of Milan called Violante, and he died on his wedding night. And then there was John of Gaunt, who was extremely ambitious and thought he should be king. And it would seem to me, um, I've got lots of theories about that, which I'm slowly revealing in the in the next series, but I won't tell you now because it's it's too long. It's going to become a history lesson. Yes. But, but you do say that history has been written by the winners and Richard has come out badly there because he was uh, more or less pushed aside by, was it one of John of Gaunt's son? Yes, it was John of Gaunt's son, Henry, Henry Bolingbroke. Mm. Um, um, and he was about the same age as Richard, maybe there was six months, about six months difference, but they were always, it seemed to me, in competition when they were children. Mm. When Richard came back to London. He was born in Bordeaux. When he came back to London, um, Henry was the the big lad on on the on the corner. If you know what I mean, yes. he was. They were they both what six seven year olds, and Henry had a a nice gang of people, including Mowbray, various people. He had his gang, and Richard was the little blonde, frail outsider who spoke French. So, so he was. I think he was. From that moment on, they were they were rivals. Yes, and they were first cousins, weren't they? They were first cousins. Yes. Mm, mm. Yeah. And t- tell us how Richard. He he did reign for twenty two years, but how did he meet his end? Oh well, this was extraordinary. Really, it was so well managed. I've just written the first book in a new series called The Hour of the Fox, and. I really wanted to to give time to the the events that led up to Richard's murder, really, and how it came about, because the history books tend to gloss over it. Oh, Bolingbroke came back and usurped the crown. Oh, fine. Well, what did actually happen? And what was it like for ordinary people? And you really have to search through the chronicles because the first thing Bolingbroke, Henry, Henry IV, did when he came to the throne was sent his chaps round, much like Henry VIII, to all the monasteries. Henry sent them round to check out how much they got, so how much money he would get if he um, took them over. And Bolingbroke went round to have all the chronicles checked, and anything that was at all sympathetic to Richard II was taken out. Two chronicles escaped, and they are quite extraordinarily different to the ones that do survive. So I've been getting a, a, a lot of um, primary source material from those and also um, primary source accounts from people who were travelling with Richard II. What happened was he went over to Ireland to make a peace treaty. He was very much in favour of peace, which set him against the warlords like Arundel, like all, all the main um, aristocracy and the king, of course. They, they wanted war because they wanted more land. They wanted to reinstate themselves in France and so forth. And Richard wanted to do uh, make peace treaties, which he did with France, dynastic marriage with the French king's daughter, um, peace treaty with the Scots, um, and he went over to Ireland to make a peace treaty with them. So for that reason, I quite admire him. It was so much against the grain at that particular period when society was rather military, well, intensely militaristic. So while he was in Ireland, um, Bolingbroke was in exile at the same time as Thomas Mowbray because the two of them had been plotting together with the Earl of Arundel to depose Richard. 
because they wanted war to continue and they wanted to be in control. And Bolingbroke's main rival, which was a youngish uncle, Edward III, this, is, this gets very complicated for people who don't know much about the period. His youngest brother, Edward III's youngest brother, had been murdered, and no one really knows by whom, but he'd been sent to prison in Calais for plotting against Richard II. So the Lancastrian story is Richard II ordered his murder, which is nonsense because he could have easily legally done away with him, but he didn't, which was a mistake because it was used as a leverage for Bolingbroke, who now found the way clear to the throne of Richard. So he had to get rid of Richard. So while he was away, Bolingbroke broke out of exile, hired a couple of ships from the Duke of Orleans, he'd been staying at his court in exile, borrowed the money for ships and a few men, sailed up to Ravens, so which is very near Meuse. It's the port for Meuse Abbey and all those places. So it brings it into, you know, it's a good source for the story. And Bonningbrook had many Lancastrian castles up there, which his father had got. There was Scarborough, Knaresborough, Coningsborough, Pickering, a whole, a whole stack of places. And the men there owed allegiance to him. So they had to come out. If, if he called them out to war, they had to turn up. So he, he managed to acquire an army. He also then had access to all the funds of the Lancastrian dynasty, which were massive. John of Gaunt was said to be more wealthy than the King of England back in the 80s. So Bolingbroke had a huge amount of money. He could pay archers, for instance, three times the going rate. So he started to march down England without telling anybody where he was going. Um, I'm sorry, I'm getting now into the first book of the new series. At the time, Richard was away, Storms, oh gosh, it's very complicated. I'm going to tell you the entire story. I wonder if I should just stop there and say, well, what happened was <laughs> Bolingbroke. Probably, probably, yes. Yeah, Bolingbroke cut Richard's arrival off when he did finally manage to land and his army, uh, Richard's army was scattered and he was duped totally because Bolingbroke kept saying, all I want to do is come back to my inheritance. And in fact, he, he clearly had his eye on the crown. So he captured him at Flint Castle, took him as a prisoner to London, put him in the tower. Um, and it's a complicated story, but eventually he sent him up to Pontefract Castle where he was apparently allegedly starved to death. Nobody actually knows how he died. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was Bolingbroke, and he did everything he could after that to establish complete control. He was the first king to um, agree to the burning of heretics. I'm definitely going to write about that because not many people know about it. I just think it's so horrible. Mm. It was, um, he burned a chap called William Sawtree for not believing in the Eucharist. I mean, you know, he really stamped on freedom of thought, um, writing to the Chaucer's involved in this. Mm. Um, he fell foul of the 
sort of repression. How, how many books do you think The Hour of the Fox is going to turn into? Is that going to be a series? Oh, well, again, I th- just as with the Hildegard one, I thought, I'll just write one. And then as I was writing, I thought, well, maybe I'll write two and that will be it. But I really don't know. It's, it's such an intriguing, complicated and relatively unknown story. And it's been travestied, I think, by the Lancastrians yes. and by the censorship. So I would like to bring into mm. clarification mm. various things that have been hidden for a very long time. And do you think Hildegard is also going to continue parallel to this, or have we seen the final Hildegard? You know, I thought that I thought number ten was probably going to be the final one, um, but I'm talking to people at Bewley Abbey, and it was a Cistercian Abbey, and there were some weird connections with Muse. Now, Bewley Abbey is down in the New Forest in the south of England, and Muse and Bewley used to trade with each other. So there was a very lively um, connection. And when I first moved to, I'm in Limington, when I moved to Limington, the New Forest, on the quay, I saw a big sign, and there's an old medieval building saying, Muse Ales. And I thought, gosh, M-E-A-U-X, how Strange, that's a coincidence. And I did a bit of research and found out that there was this trade. But also, up in Muse, when I went up there to have a look around, nothing of the Abbey much left, a few um, arches, and not very much at all. I spoke to somebody living in the Grange there, and they were called Bueller. And I thought, that's so extraordinary. Yeah. There was clearly people going down and settling. You know, and they took the name of the place they came from. Mm. I thought, wow, that's amazing. So I think Hildegard will go on, and I think she's going to come back to Bewley in Book 11. She's definitely going to go to Bewley. You've got an unfinished story there with the um, with the other, with the love interest, or the sort of love interest in quotes, that we have to know what happens in the end there. <laughs> <laughs> what can happen? Happens are both monastics aren't they? Uh, they're, they're both stuck. monastics yes so I don't know what can happen but there's certainly an attraction yes you keep on thinking what's going what's going to happen <laughs> I know people get very cross to say oh come on what's going to happen can they get together are they going to get together <laughs> <laughs> look we're starting to come to the end of our chat but I just wanted to talk a little bit beyond your books to your wider career you've mentioned that you were involved in street theatre and you've written contemporary romance are you still doing any theatre now um not in fact but I by chance I've met one or two theatre people and I'm going to search out a script which I wrote but didn't try to get performed anywhere it's about DNA and discovering that you're not actually related to the people you think you are or that you're related to somebody that you didn't think you would be. Um, so that makes, for me, that makes it, I think that's a really interesting Oh, yes, theme. I agree. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But also there's a film option on one of the books, so that would be good. Oh, I'd like so that. Which, so, which one's that? The, the Dragon of Handel. Fantastic. It's, yeah, it's an American company. I just hope they can... Get it going. I'd love to see it on screen. Mm. I'm not sure who who would play Hildegard there. People get oh, who would be Hildegard, and I think oh, Rachel Weiss, who I used to know when she was at Cambridge, my daughter. She's contemporary with my daughter. Thought she'd be rather good. 
But there's Hubert, I don't know. He's got to be a real heartthrob, hasn't he? Yes, <laughs> yeah, he does, yes. Oh, look, that's wonderful, though. Look, if there's one thing you've done more than any other, what do you think has been the secret of your success? How do you mean? Well, in terms of your writing, is there something... Oh, it seems to me that it probably is your intense research. Intense, you know, really... Um, both enlivens the books and brings the whole period to life. But I'm putting words in your mouth. You know, your books are very successful. You've got a traditional publisher. They're widely um, known. I'd consider that that to be definitely something you could be proud of. What do you think contributed to that? Yeah, Sorry, I'm just really surprised that you, you've heard of them. And I'm, I'm really interested in how it strikes you, how medieval England strikes you when you're in such a different environment. It must be very strange because I, you know, I can walk out of the door and go and look at a pile of old stones or walk in, into a building that was built in the 12th century or something. But when I was in Australia, I found I couldn't do that and it seemed very odd. Mm. Um, I guess that we're used to that and, and we're used to the feeling that with the medieval times, of course, we do just have to rely on our imagination, yeah. Strangely, I, I did my first research outside the Chronicle when I was in Sydney. Oh. I found an amazing book about trade in the Middle Ages by a chap called Spufford. I think his name was John Spufford. And it's all about trade and profit in the Middle Ages, it's called. And it went through every single thing we would ever have used then um, the, and where it came from and the trade routes for it absolutely packed full of facts. It was a wonderful book. And the three months I was in Sydney, I used to read a, a chapter a week. So it was very densely packed with information. And that was a, that was an odd thing. <laughs> now I think about it, because it was intensely hot in Sydney. And, um, you know, it was, it was just wonderful. And there was a marvellous opera house and the harbour and so on. And I was deciding whether to go to New Zealand and it was my it's my great regret that I didn't actually do it it's much much further from Australia than I realized you thought it was just going to be like going to Tasmania did you <laughs> I did Tasmania I went for a week I, I arrived in Melbourne from London got another plane with my daughter and we went to Tasmania for a wedding <laughs> I didn't really know where I was it was extraordinary Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's gorgeous. Oh, that's great. Look, we do call this the joys of binge reading. So I have to ask you, number one, if you ever have been a binge reader, it sounds to me that maybe your reading is rather more serious, but you probably do have read some books for binge reading. And if so, who would you like to recommend? Oh, I, I woke up in the middle of the night. I didn't sleep last night. I woke up in the after an hour or so and I was lying there thinking what about books and my mind was a total blank and then they started to pour in I haven't done much reading this year because I've written two novels and it hasn't left much time to read and I'm dying to get back into rereading. I love Barbara Pym oh. I mean totally different to anything I'm doing and we have, there are vicars in it obviously and all that sort of thing 1950s England quite nimsy but sly wit absolutely hilarious 
Um, so I've read all her stuff. I like Henry James. I know a lot of people don't, but in those very convoluted sentences, you get a little bomb. I think he's he's very clever at that sort of thing. And I love this Anglo-Irish writer. Yes, I must recommend him. He's called T.G. Farrell. And he wrote an absolutely hilarious but heartbreaking novel called The Siege of Krishnapur. And it's really about the end of empire. It's a very clever book because it appears to be about these people who are in danger of their life. They're surrounded um, and slowly starving to death, which sounds grim. But he gets every ounce of satire, of I'm sorry, of, of Britain, the British Empire, out of it. And it's just, it's quite heartbreaking and amazing. Mm. And he wrote one also about the Irish Troubles, being Anglo-Irish. Mm. But sadly, he died when he was very in a fishing accident, apparently, um, at the height of his, well, the beginning of his career. Mm. But his books are really worth reading. Mm. I like um, E.L. Doctorow. Oh, yes. The American writer. Yes. Um, I'm mentioning men a lot. Donald Barthelme, I really like his experiments. I would binge on, on his stuff. You'd really see the world aslant if you did that. Mm, mm. I like Jean Rhys. I'm just reading her last stories, which, again, very short. The last one of all is only about a page and a half, but it, it has such a punch. It's extraordinary. It's got more power than, you know, massive thousand-page saga. Mm. So I really like stuff. Um, who else? Lots of ones. I read, read a bit of Chaucer, actually. Mm. Um, that wouldn't be exactly binge reading for most people, would it? <laughs> no. <laughs> Take a lot of time to read them. <laughs> Very slow reading. So looking back over your, your writing life, um, is there anything that you'd do differently if you had a chance to do it over again? Yeah, I wouldn't have given up on theatre so easily. It seemed that I could keep keep a connection when I was, went back to look after my parents up in Yorkshire. But I should have made more of an effort, and I didn't, and I regret that. So I just, I'm in awe of actors. I think they're amazing. I don't know how they do it. It seems very sad that your play that you were going to be working on and that Edward Albee workshop, that it got so um, terribly interrupted. You, you've never had a chance to really go back to that? Yeah, I did. I, I was working on the final draft, and it was actually done as a theatre up in Newcastle. Oh, really? Um, rehearse as a rehearsed reading, um, but I didn't go. I couldn't bear it, so I, I just didn't go. Just stupid. I regret that. Yeah, I regret that. I should have been there and got it done properly. Why didn't you go? I just, I just felt that I didn't write. I haven't written another play since then. Since the towers, the twin towers was such a to be there was was just something so unbelievably awful. Although we were on Long Island, um, we were on the fringes and people would, oh gosh, they were walking up the island covered in dust to escape mm. and not know what they were doing. Mm. And the planes were going over all night for a fortnight or so. And we went out in a boat one day and uh, the Navy intercepted us and we had to prove who we were. It was, it was a really horrible war it was a war mm. and I think it's been forgotten because it was so horrible it's been forgotten and I've actually written a, a novel about it 
um, with that as a background rather than focusing on it because I just haven't the strength to do that. But it's a novel I want to actually put in a fi its final draft this year if I can. Because I feel it's got to be acknowledged. Mm. Look, that leads us very nicely into talking about what you are working on now. Um, what have you got in plan for the next or in train for the next 12 months? Mm. Well, it depends on how things are received, as you know, you know what mm. publishing's like. Mm. I sent off the um, final edits of The Eye of the Fox last Thursday. And they've got a lovely cover already, great cover. Um, so I've just got the copy, edi copy editing to do next and anything that comes up from that. And then depending on how things are, if they do want another one, which I hope they do, I'll start researching that. But in the meantime, I'm going to finish the, the one I was about the towers it's called falling through water and it's um something i really just very much need to do i'll also look at this play i'd love to get that done i think it i had a reading of it a few years ago and it sounded really okay it sounded as if it worked and all the actors seemed to enjoy it so um i may have a look at that i'm a little bit outside the theater scene living down in the new forest <laughs> so um, it might be just too hard. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, do you think that you'd have a hand in the script if your if your book got made, the Dr the Dragon of Handel? Do you think you'd have a hand in the script? No, I had to trust a scriptwriter from an agency called Artists United, and I haven't even seen it. But I really like her. We have a an email um, banter back and forth now and then. Yeah, I really like her. She sounds very good. She's called Lisa Cause. And she's written a lot of scripts. So um, oh, I'm, I'm sure she's done a good job. <laughs> now, I'm not sure if you, you've got a blog online, you've got a website, you've got a blog. Do you like to interact with your readers? And if so, where can they find you? My blog is um, in the website. It's just cassandraclark.co.uk. Yes. I'm really, really bad at writing on the blog. I very rarely do it, but I resolve from now on to write at least one blog a week. Oh, that's There's a big no commitment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to get this super fast for, um, fast fibre line, so I'll be able to do it. At the moment, it takes so long to get online, I just get bored and fed up, forget what I'm doing, go off and do something else. But if it's really fast, I'll be able to get on do a quick blog of whatever I'm working on and latest news and so on, and then switch off. So, so that's that's my um, resolution, my October resolution. So that's wonderful. So we can find you at CassandraClark.com, is it, or .co.uk? But I don't think it really matters. I think if you just put my name in, yes, it, if it you comes put it, up. Yes, yes, for this. yes. There is another Cassandra Clark out there, Cassandra Rose Clark in the States, but if you put in the UK, it's very easy to find you. Yes. Oh, I haven't come across her. What I do get is Cassandra Clare. Oh. <laughs> people, people can't spell, can they? It's just one letter difference, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. Um. 
hey, so just, I suppose it's very easy. Just one very final tight. question. You, I think that I did read somewhere that you once said you hoped to do one Hildegard book for every year that Richard reigned, which would be 22 of them. Is that still something you've got in the back of your mind? It is very much in the back of my mind. I was working out the other day how old she was going to be by the time she gets there. I think she'll still be walking about, heroically. <laughs> she will definitely, though, have taken over from the prioress. Yes, she will have done. <laughs> the prioress will be about 110, I think. <laughs> Oh, well, that's wonderful. We've got a lot of um, Hildegard books to look forward to then, it sounds like. Oh, well, as long as people keep liking them, then I'll keep writing them. Look, thank you so much for your time, Cassandra. It's been wonderful talking. Thank you, Jenny. It's, 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 it's still, I'm still frightened. <laughs> I'm still nervous. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. That really is. No, it's, you've done well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.